We stay together. We survive. We survive. We survive. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Communicate. Stick together. Stick together. In the name of unit cohesion. 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 You are listening to the Cohesion Podcast. Actionable tips from internal comms leaders on how to improve your company's employee experience. This episode features an interview with Betsy Leatherman, Global President of Consulting Services at Leadership Circle. Betsy has 10 years of experience transforming executives and middle managers into exceptional leaders. In her current role, Betsy helps clients become more effective leaders so they can make decisions that engage and motivate members of their organizations and customers they serve. In this episode, Amanda and Betsy discuss leadership development, common mistakes leaders make during layoffs, and the two leadership orientations. Before we dive into the interview, here's a brief word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Simpler, the leading AI-powered employee experience platform. We are on a mission to transform the work experience for billions of people across the world. Organizations use our products to deliver personalized experiences that inspire and engage their employees. When work is good, life is better. Learn more at simpler.com. That's S-I-M-P-P-L-R.com. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation between Betsy Leatherman, Global President of Consulting Services at Leadership Circle, and your host, Amanda Berry, Corporate Brand and Communications Manager at Simpler. Betsy, thank you so much for joining me today. You are very welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about all things leadership and leadership development. So I was reading an article you wrote. It's titled, Looking for Great Leaders, Invest in New Leaders. And one of the things that I was thinking over and over that I've seen companies do is they cherry pick people who they think they want in leadership positions and everyone else doesn't get that training. And, you know, in my mind, I was thinking that's that's a big miss because you're losing the opportunity to train them to have better skills that they can use while they lead themselves. And it also kind of sets the tone like we want them to be leaders and not you guys or we're picking them and not you because everyone will benefit from that kind of development. So what is your reaction to when companies don't train everyone to be leaders? Yeah, I, well, I think it's a huge mistake, to be honest. I think what I have experienced and what I know is that every person has the capacity and capability to be a great leader, every single person. And so when people get cherry-picked, and they often do that for efficiency of spend reasons, like, oh, we, we have this limited budget, so we can't take everyone in. But the reality is that the age is upon us of the democratization of leadership, meaning everyone should have the opportunity to develop and be developed. And I actually think that is the responsibility of the company that they're with, to look out across the masses and see what is the way in which we can bring everyone forward, because they all benefit from when that happens. And when we democratize the development, it becomes for everyone and then it also becomes for life. And I think that's a really important thing to note. There's not like you develop and you get to a certain plateau and there you are, you're good. It's ongoing over and over because complexity continues to rise for people. And so they need that skill set, mindset, and tool set as they continue throughout their career. Yeah, because for me, being a good leader isn't just about results, right? It's about these qualities, these human components to being a leader, we're hearing about it, empathy. And and that's one that comes up, like what's the key component of a good leader? And it's empathy. And people need help developing those qualities, even people who stand out as being a good leader. So would you talk about why companies should invest in leaders and basically everyone? Yeah. So what I know from the data that we have, we have the world's largest database on leader behavior. And what I know is our most effective leaders and the ones that get the best business results are the ones that differentiate on relationship. So whether it be caring connection, fostering team play, being a collaborator, or mentoring and developing others, however that relationship orientation shows up, those are the ones in our database that excel over the top and then they get better business results. Now, that's not everyone's natural state. And also, I will tell you this, as people grow through their careers, 
they haven't always gotten results in that way. Oftentimes, people have gotten great results by pushing forward, being really driven or kind of controlling of what's going on. Or maybe even they attacked something with their head. And so they were more cerebral and they excelled at doing that as an individual contributor. Or they had kind of a heart-based approach where they looked at everything that was happening and figured out exactly how to align. However, when they take that solemn vow of leadership and they take other people's lives into their hands in terms of how I lead, how I help, all of a sudden that shift, that change requires them to do something different with that same energy. It's like, how do you take and harvest the gift of those things, but then put it in a new way? And the five things that we see in total are relationship, relationship focus, self-awareness. Do they have a high level of understanding what's happening for themselves? Authenticity, how authentic can they be about what's going on? Systems awareness, can they see the whole system? And then achieving. Of those five, the differentiator in the end is relationship. I wonder if companies have those list of those five things. I mean, you're saying from your database that ends up being what makes up a successful leader. But I think me and a lot of listeners out here can say, oh, I've had leaders that don't have three of those or, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. So companies often have kind of like leadership qualities or lists that they say, these are the things we espouse or we ask our leaders to espouse to be. So lots of companies have that, or they might have values that are similar and kind of fall into those categories. If they don't, most of the time, um, at least now, back to your first question, even the new leaders are asking for that. And they're saying like, what are the leadership standards we hold ourselves to, whether that's at a team level or at an individual contributor level, what are the things that we need to be thinking about in terms of leadership? Because those should be part of the fabric, part of the culture of the organization. What I've always said and experienced in many organizations, if you don't do that on purpose, it will happen for you. And they're not always the values that you really want to ascribe to that just kind of happen not on purpose. For people who are listening, whether HR internal comms even, and they're helping companies stand up a leadership development program. What are some do's and don'ts into making people good leaders? I think the most important thing is to understand that the leadership development agenda needs to tie in to the strategic agenda. So it's not two separate things. And sometimes people get so kind of focused on, we've got to do this leadership development program, or we have to take this level of leaders to a new level in terms of the way in which they handle complexity. But all of that is so that we can. And I think as long as they're asking themselves the question, like, so that we can what? We want to take them to a new level of complexity so that they may handle the market demands and challenges that are being placed in front of that level of leadership. Okay, so then what? So that they may encounter those situations and know how to handle them better so they get better results. And then all of a sudden when you do that, you realize how important that leadership development is And what that really means for the whole program in its entirety. And that'll get people's attention. I think sometimes people start off more on, well, what do we want our leaders to do? What do we want our leaders to be? Not realizing that there is significant strategic impact and succession impact, how that ultimately impacts who gets promoted and who can step into the next role and who's trained to do that. All right, let's back up for a few minutes and talk more about you. I want to start understanding what you do. So let's move into our segment, Story Time. Welcome to Story Time. Story Time. Story Time. Let me tell you a story. You're the global president of consulting services at Leadership Circle. What is Leadership Circle and what do you do there? At Leadership Circle, we exist to evolve the conscious practice of leadership for leaders across the globe. We believe that when leaders are more conscious, they will steward the planet in a better way. And so that's why we exist. Um, We have products, resources, tools, development, training that leaders can use to improve their level of consciousness as they face really complex challenges as leaders. And kind of two parts to our business, we have 18 principles inside the business that go direct to leaders to help them. And then we have 11,000 certified practitioners that have their own businesses, but utilize our tools and our database inside of the work that they do. So it's kind of fun. We basically think of us as like the, we serve the leader development market through either our own principles or through these 11,000 certified practitioners and support them in the growth of their business. How long does a training like that generally take with a leader? 
You know, it depends on the organization and the appetite that they have. I'm working a program right now for a large pharmaceutical organization. It's a five-day immersion program. So we take them Monday through Friday. We immerse them in new concepts. They've actually been building on this for years. So they're eight years in, and this is their kind of third round as leaders go through. I have other organizations that people might only have a half-day session, or they might be in a year-long program. It's really what is most appropriate for that organization and what the leaders can handle based off the pace of their business, really. How did you get to this? Like, How did you decide you wanted to be uh, have a career in leadership development? Because it's important. Oh, great question. So my background, my educational background is psychology and behavioral neuroscience. And I always loved watching how people's minds work and how they develop. I went to the University of Minnesota. The University of Minnesota is a developmental-based psychology program. So essentially, you look at an adult through the lens of everything that's ever happened to them, this journey they've been on. At the time, I didn't know it was really similar to leadership development. And in fact, when I started my career after school, I did primarily marketing and just so happened to have my first role at a division of the Aon Corporation, where we focused on culture. And what I found out real quick was that if you want to have a great culture, you need great leaders. And the way that my education and that tied together was just, it was phenomenal. It was really, really fun too. It's incredible work to get to sit with a leader and do that work. After I left Anne, I started a marketing firm. And some of the folks that I had met at that company asked me to do some projects with them and do kind of the marketing side, the communications and engagement side and sold that business. And then actually as a stay-at-home mom for five years with my boys, And about five years in, I got a call from some of the folks I had worked with at Aon and they said, hey, are you ready to come back to work? And I said, no, no, I'm never working again. (laughs) I'm just going to raise boys and this will be it. And they said, well, let us just tell you about what we're doing. And we met and they told me about what they were doing. And it was like everything in my career from day one at school all the way through the marketing organization all kind of put together into one role. And so I decided to step in. That was 10 years ago. So I measure everything in little boy years. So the little boys were five and seven when I started and they're 15 and 17 now. (laughs) Wow. That's awesome. Congratulations. Nice to see everything come together like that. It's a treat. And I mean, it's amazing to get to kind of have two roles. I get to run the consulting side of the organization, which is great. I mean, it's like, how can I serve this incredible audience of people who are making huge impact in the world? What's the best way I can serve them and help them? That's one part of my job. And then the other part of my job, I actually get to do the work. So I actually get to sit with leaders and hear what they're wrestling with and listen to the way in which they process things, which, you know, so many changes that have happened in the world in the last several years and to watch leaders and sit beside them and see how they process and help them to do that. It actually feels like very sacred space. So it's a pretty unbelievable job. Now, what have you noticed out of the past few years? Some big changes and you've been doing it like 10 years or more. What have you been noticing since the pandemic or during the pandemic? Yeah, so the pandemic, the pandemic was complexity at a level that none of us had ever imagined, really, or most of us, I should say. We hadn't necessarily thought we could be put into lockdown and that our businesses would fundamentally change and that parts of our business may dry up literally overnight while other parts of the faucet turned on. That was shocking to people. People also utilizing telecommunications now in this way is so normal, but back then it wasn't. And so for people to have to turn so quickly on a dime, the good news is they figured it out and their heads have made sense of that. The reality is, is that the trauma remains in their body. I've this past year, I've been doing a pretty significant study on polyvagal theory that your body basically holds on to those experiences even though your mind has processed it. So so one of the beliefs about the body and mind is that your body holds the experience and the thinking about the experience is actually a secondary process. You actually make sense of it later. So even if our minds have made sense of that, the reality is, is that the trauma of that still resides in our body. So then you come out of a pandemic, people are trying to figure out how to work in a hybrid style. We have a mass exodus event from business in total and we can't find the right employee. So now it's like, oh my gosh, now we've got this hiring situation. Then all of a sudden you hit inflation and a potential recession. And what I've seen with leaders is that this ongoing rise of complexity has been really challenging and people are really getting tired out. And you've actually seen some examples of it when you'll see a leader 
kind of spout off in a message to the company, like suck it up, get back in, you're fine. That's actually a trauma-based response. Now, remember before when I talked about the kind of ways in which people as individual contributors step forth, if you step forth in a controlling way, that's a controlling response. You're trying to grab a hold of something and make sense of it so that you can survive in it. That's not a a leadership-based response. A leadership-based response would come from relating. It would come from authenticity. It would come from the desire to achieve still, but it would do that in a way that is engaging of people and holding them in the space that they're in so that they can be enabled to do what they need to do and get the results that they want to get. What we're finding is some leaders are doing that really well, and some are absolutely exhausted by the prospect of continuing to have to do that. I know we've seen some videos of that exact reaction. There's been CEOs come on and say, you know, suck it up. We got to get through this. What should CEOs have done in lieu of that? So a couple of different things. The first is, I think they still need to maintain the vision they have. So sometimes we as leaders get caught up in this belief that I have to like let go of my vision of getting everybody back into the office and just acquiesce, like, yep, you don't have to come to work anymore. But even if I really believe that you ought to, you have to let go that there's a polarity that either you're in the office or you're out, right? You have to let go of that and find a more transformational third way. There's an author named Brian Emerson. He talks about taking polarities like that and finding a transformational third way to actually be. And I think that's what CEOs need to figure out. They need to understand why, in this case, about coming back in the office, Why don't people want to come back in? What is the benefit of them being at home? And then what's the benefit of being at the office? And how can you together create a solution that everyone is in support of? I would hesitate to believe that there are many people in an organization that actually don't want to get results. They do. Humans by nature want to get things done. They want to get results. Now, if you happen to have a group of people or individuals that don't want to get results, that's a different conversation. That's a performance-based conversation. But in mass, If they're getting a different result from something, the idea and concept of sitting down and understanding and asking them, why don't you want to come into the office? How can we make this better? How can this be a benefit to you? And understanding that is far more valuable than just saying, hey, everybody get back in. You got to do it now. Let's move into our next segment, Getting Tactical. I'm trying to figure out tactics. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't have to worry about tactics too much. Here I am in charge and trying to say, why did you sleep through tactics? Tactics. From your experience, where does leadership development usually sit in an organization? Depends on the size of the organization. Generally, the executive leadership team should have a vision and perspective on leadership development. Depending on the size, though, they might outsource that in terms of execution to an actual organizational development or leadership development function. If they do not, it is absolutely the role of the leaders in the organization to figure out how they grow more leaders. And so hopefully an organization might have an expert around that that they can turn to and say, given your expertise, can you help us do this in the best way that links to our business? But some organizations don't have that. And so really it needs to be study and execution by leaders in the organization. They need to hold that because development inside of an organization fundamentally relates to the achievement of strategy. And if it doesn't, then you actually end up having some problems around why are you doing it anyways? Yeah, so many times I see HR owns this. It's like a secondary function of HR. What are your thoughts on that? I think that that is very useful and helpful as long as those HR people are equipped to have that conversation as a partner, as a team with the leader and bring that perspective. And I actually, I think that's a a great function for HR to hold as long as they have the training development and support to do that. If they do not, and you take kind of a traditional HR person and put them into that role, they might be able to hold the leadership development lens, but not also link it to the strategic business case, which I think is really the crux of leadership development sticking and being extraordinarily valuable for the organization. Yeah. So when I think of leaders, like when we talk about leaders, I think that real high level executive, and then there's the middle management part and then individual contributors. But I know from being an internal comms, that middle managers are very important in the relationship between employees and leaders, right? Especially if they're like a hands-on frontline deskless worker, 
they're generally working with their manager. That's how they're getting information. That's how they're building their ideas and basically learning what's new in the company, all of that stuff. What are the benefits in training that middle manager level to be good leaders? They are vast. So the rubber meets the road at the middle manager. Because even if you've got a great leadership team that's highly developed, if they do not translate that through the way in which a middle manager shows up to a frontline employee, it doesn't matter. And actually, if you've got a great set of senior leaders, let's say, and then a set of middle managers that haven't been developed, it can actually be really, really challenging for the frontline employee because they see one thing and they experience something so different and immediately they'll lose trust, which they should, right? If I hear senior leaders saying this and my manager is actually doing the exact opposite of that, how can I trust that that's going to be true for me? And so making sure that that middle manager with the vantage point that they have are well-resourced in terms of how to handle complexity and handle situations with employees, not only will it achieve good results in terms of the business side, right? They'll get better business results. They will also enable that frontline employee more. And from a leader development perspective, one of the things that I think is really important to see, if you're an executive leader and you look down at your middle management organization or look out at middle management and then look out one layer deeper, what you see is that there are people with different vantage points than you that you cannot take. So they see customer experiences different. They see the service delivery or even the product delivery at a level that you probably don't have access to. And so making sure that all of those people are well-resourced to handle the complexity that they're facing only benefits the leadership team. It only makes getting results that much easier. And so my perspective is if you started a customer and then you move backwards in terms of importance being frontline employees are very important to be extraordinarily well-resourced. Their managers also have to be even better resourced in personally to help them handle their complexities. And then when that occurs, all of a sudden it's at scale. You as a leader, a senior leader in the organization, you're at scale because you're helping them to be better and you're getting their perspective and vantage point that you might otherwise not be offered. Thinking about this idea of training and being able to get that done, especially if like hands off or hybrid work culture, how are you seeing at leadership circle that people are being trained? Is it mostly through technology? Depending again on the size of the organization and the topic of the training, we know and believe and have seen the benefits of like a lead tech platform. How do you use technology to enable leadership development? That needs to be put together with some hands-on face-to-face kind of the human, more human elements, but the way in which those two work together not only helps to get it to more people because it's obviously a more efficient way to distribute information, but there's also a whole group of learners that would rather learn quietly by themselves versus in a large group. And so you can get it to many more people. What we are experiencing and testing and have in market now are technology tools to enable development at the individual and group level. And we're working on what is the role of AI in helping advance those people and reach even more. And we think that that is absolutely the future. And so we know that, I mean, in our instances and applications now, we're using AI to help people advance. We know that's even going to be more so in the future. What does that look like to have AI help with leadership development? Here's a couple of ways. Let's pretend you and I are on a team and let's say there's 20 of us. And we can actually engage with questions in preparation. Let's say we're going to have an offsite. We can engage with each other. We can engage individually and we can engage as a group utilizing technology. And I might be able to ask a question of the group and the AI can actually read the group's feedback and give me a perspective. So you'd set it up, let's say we're headed to this offsite. What do you think are the three most important strategic factors that we need to address as a team? And as I put my input in on the back end, AI is taking everybody else's input and feeding it back and saying, oh, half of your colleagues would agree with you. And another third, they actually say this is more important. And so what's really nice about that is that in advance, I can be thinking about what it is that I might need to talk through at the meeting with everyone. 
versus showing up at the meeting and trying to establish that as we're all sitting together. So what that ultimately does is it ends up accelerating the team, right? We can start a conversation and have it for weeks or months in advance. And then when we get together, we can say, hey, one of the things that we know we need to talk about is what are the, really the strategic things that we need a creative solution for? And we know that half of us think this and half think that. Let's have that discussion. Well, that's quite accelerated from just figuring it out that day. You might also need tools and resources to be prepared for that discussion. And you can do that if you know it in advance. Absolutely. That's one way. Okay. I want to talk about an article you are featured in in Forbes. The title of it is Three Keys to Shift Your Leadership Mindset. In that, you discuss two different kinds of leadership orientations. There's problem reacting and outcome creating. Can you break down the difference of those for us? For sure. So problem reacting is all about containing anxiety. So a problem occurs at work. I get an email or a message or something happens. I get a phone call, worse yet. A problem occurs and I immediately react. I react in one of those ways that I talked about before. It could be a controlling way, it could be a protecting way, or it might be a complying way, but I react. When my reaction comes, the fear that that problem brought starts to go down. So I can take a deep breath. Problem's gone. My reaction can wane a little. Fear is gone. Okay, we're good. Problem has gotten smaller yet again. And we go on like this for a while until, uh-oh, problem one. comes back. <laughs> Another one comes up or the same one because my reaction started to go down. And this pattern creates this kind of oscillating loop of there's a problem, I've got a solution. There's a problem, I've got a solution. And ultimately for leaders, what occurs is you get this anxiety response every time that the phone rings or every time you see a message about that, oh, here's the problem back again, I'm gonna have to address it. That's a problem reacting anxiety containing. On the other side, based off of a whole bunch of research, but also the belief that problems never really go away. There's just a bigger vision that we get pulled to. When a problem comes up, instead of moving to this reactive response, what we want leaders to move toward is more like, what's your purpose or what's your vision? Well, what's the way in which you want this fixed? So that which you do is not about reacting to the problem, but actually creating steps to get closer to your vision. Then as you create steps to get closer to that vision, the problem doesn't actually go away because now you're starting to integrate it in what you're trying to do that's more long-term. And you begin to get passionate about that outcome instead of just trying to eliminate anxiety or eliminate fear, you actually unleash passion. And everybody knows once passion is unleashed, the energy is so high and strong you might actually start being in search of problems. You may get curious of wanting to know what's out there so that you can address it in terms of the longer-term vision going forward. So instead of being this pattern that's up and down, it becomes much more achieving in nature. Now, you might have little ups and downs in there, but they tend to be much closer together because you're going for something that's much deeper from a place of purpose to a place of vision. So those are the kind of the differences of the two models. Can you give me an example? I feel like I have worked in places where that problem reacting is the way to go. And I don't know if you have one that we could say like, well, this is how you would react with problem reacting. This is how you should react with outcome creating. Yeah, sure. Why don't I take artificial intelligence as an example? Because it's kind of a hot topic. It's making a lot of complexity in leaders' worlds right now. So actually, I'll give you a personal example of where I found myself literally starting to do problem reacting. So I was in a meeting where our technology team was talking with me about some of the enhancements that we have coming based off of AI and what that was going to take. And so what became reality for me in that moment was that there were people who knew much, much more about AI and had a much broader and built up perspective around how that would influence our business than me. So that became a problem for me, right? Because in that instance, I'm supposed to be guiding and helping and leading. And in fact, what I'm finding is like, I don't actually know everything about this subject. So my automatic reactive response, and it's really typical for me, was this kind of driven, I've got to learn everything immediately about AI. And so that the problem of that would go away. And so I was like, started literally starting to write down, okay, 
find resources, read everything, stay up late to figure it all out. And then you've got to do your other work too. But I'm, I'm literally starting to do that. And so after about a day of that, I was like, this is actually so big. I can't get that far fast, right? Like I can't do that on my own. And while the problem started to go away a little in our next day of meetings, I knew a little bit more, I could contribute a little bit more. So I was feeling a little bit better. We go the next day and they have a whole new level of understanding. And I'm like, okay, I've got to think about something different. And what I realized was I was in this anxiety containing reactive loop. So instead, and what I did was utilize my connection system. I thought, well, they know more than I do about this. So what I need to do is get really curious about what they know. I could reach out to customers too. I happen to coach several people who are looking at their organization and how their organization responds with AI. So I'm like, well, I could ask them, what are the ways you think about this? How are you achieving this with your business? And all of a sudden, instead of it just being what I could do, like in an overnight (laughs) reading, right? I actually got to leverage all of these people around me, what they had already thought about, they knew so much more. And then I could put my role as a leader connecting the system to itself. And all of a sudden, the way I was able to contribute was so much more significant. And it was right on path with my purpose and my vision. And so instead of being afraid of this topic of AI, I'm super curious now, and I'm super curious about what other people think, how my customers have experienced that, how I might better enable leaders, practitioners, or principals. And it's it's a curious, fun space for me. And so I want it more. So I'm literally like, anybody, tell me anything about AI. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you think, because I want to hear what they've got so that I might be able to piece that together in some way to help someone else. You can almost feel the difference when I even tell the two stories. I can, yeah. Even the way you're like sitting there, I can feel your anxiety. And then you're like, I'm so curious. Like it's totally different vibe I'm getting. Well, and can you imagine the outcome, the product outcome, how different that would be from like, okay, I'm just going to try and take this and figure it out and do all these things. The difference of what might come from that versus I'm going to connect to all these experts around the world, see what they think and see if I can kind of pull this together and hand it to the experts and be like, what else could we use to service our practitioners and our leaders and our principals in a better way? That's going to be a way better product than anything I'm going to come up with. So that's a one that is near and dear and very recent to me. It's almost like when you hear a problem, you need to like stop and like take an assessment of yourself. Yes, yeah. right away. As a matter of fact, when I was at Ann, we used to use the phrase stop, challenge, choose. Stop, take three deep breaths. From my neuroscience days, when you do that, when you take those three deep breaths, it actually allows you to utilize the executive function of your brain. If you don't do that, you're probably responding from more like a fight or fight place. And stop, challenge what you're thinking. Is this the best way to go about this? Does this make the most sense? And then choose the path that you want. I was just telling a leader the other day, I've implemented something similar to that. The second, and I've, I've gotten really, really good with knowing when anxiety is coming up in my body at all, really good at listening. So I get, mine's like a motor in my belly. As soon as I feel that motor, I stop and I count backwards from seven. So seven, six, five, four, three, two, one feels like a really long time all of a sudden. (laughs) Then I relax my jaw, my shoulders and my neck. I find that I hold a lot of stress here. A lot of my reactive stress is here. And as soon as I do that and let go of it, I'm in a totally different response place. So now I can utilize that executive functioning and say, okay, what do you really want to do with this right now? Versus I just need to react or respond. Sounds like sometimes when you respond, when you react, you can make a lot of mistakes and miss things and Yeah. 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 And you also don't get everybody else's perspective, which inherently, if you're not utilizing all of those vantage points throughout the organization and actually bigger than the organization, if you're not utilizing the ecosystem that is around you, including customers, including competitors, including partners, then really as a leader, are you getting a full perspective on what you need to do to take advantage of the opportunity that's been placed in front of you so that you might bring something even better to the market. And I think if you're not thinking in an ecosystem way and like, what could the ecosystem tell me about this? What systemically is out there? I don't think you're utilizing everything properly. Let's move into our next segment, Ripped from the Headlines. You hear the news? 
X-ray, X-ray, read all about it. Our stories ripped from the headlines. Ripped from the headlines. From my perspective, one of the biggest impacts or dings that happens to leadership is around layoffs, right? When leaders have to lay off group of folks, it hurts trust and all sorts of feelings within employees. And there's been quite a few in the past year, year and a half. From your perspective, working with leaders, what are some common mistakes leaders make when they do like mass layoffs? Mm. I think one of the most common mistakes is to believe that it is supposed to be easy or quick or not hard. And I would suggest that if any leader finds layoffs easy, quick, or not hard, they ought to take a really good look in the mirror and see if leadership is for them. And that's not to say that they don't have to be done. Sometimes organizations have grown too fast. Sometimes their results no longer support having a particular group or a particular audience. But the reality is, if you have to let anybody go, it needs to be done with a solemn vow that you took your leadership role with. And you need to understand that you are fundamentally addressing someone's safety. And I think when you take it with the seriousness that it really is, and you also know that even though you're doing this on behalf of an organization, the way in which you handle that becomes about who you are as a leader and who you are as a person, then some really basic rules apply to the extent that you can be there for the person in the moment that they are in at a one-on-one level. I think that is advantageous. Unfortunately, that is not always possible, especially with the mass layoff situations. And so taking the perspective and understanding, I'm about to deliver information that could fundamentally reach someone at the deepest level of their identity and holding it with that level of seriousness and appropriateness in terms of how it is communicated, I think is the most important thing leaders can do. And reaching out and making sure that they have resources available to them when they may be truly stripped of knowing what do I even do next is really important. But I think for all humans, one of the core most basic elements of identity is how do I make a living? Like even if you try not to be defined by your job and all of those things, the reality is that there are elements of your identity that what you do every day is part of who you are. And so when people go through a mass layoff situation, understanding that's actually what you're dealing with and connecting to, understanding the depth of how far that goes into personality and character structure is really important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other big part of this beyond layoffs that we've been seeing in the past turn up is this burnout and fatigue that employees are feeling. Why do you think there is so much fatigue employees are feeling right now? I think it's because complexity continues to get brought higher and higher for them. And I think a lot of people are working to solve those intellectually and not necessarily realize that we're coming out of the pandemic and coming out of the time when you couldn't find employees. And then we're coming out of now inflation and potentials for recession. As we come out of all of that, again, those experiences are resonant in people's bodies. So one new layer of complexity and people are like, I I just don't have any more capacity to handle this. One of the things I often say to my friends, as we talk about different people and situations, they have someone who's responding in a way that is unwarranted or other than positive or neutral. I often like to say, I don't think they're very well resourced. I don't think they're resourced to handle the moment that they're in. And so the question becomes, how can I help resource them? Um, whether that's me providing that or somebody else, how can we help someone be more better resourced? I think employee fatigue is a lot about that. I think that employees need resources to understand how to handle the complexity that they are in. And that is at every single level of an organization. There is not one leader that I have met yet that has said to me, well, I think I'm done with my leadership development (laughs) journey. In fact, the leaders that score most creative, if not integral, those with the highest level of effectiveness are the ones that say to me, please give me more resources. Please help me understand what I can do better. What are my employees saying about me? And they'll have glowing 360s, right? And they're like, well, that's great. And I'm so 
it's helpful to see that. So I know myself as an asset inside the system, but what could I do to be more utile to people? What could I do to be more helpful? It's a constant urge. And I think as people get more and more fatigued, those are the type of leaders that we need to step in and help people make sure they have the right resources to handle whatever's coming their way. Yeah, this this really ties back to what you said earlier about when you're outcome creating, you go look for problems. That's what it sounds like I'm hearing for the later, like, give me more. I want to keep learning rather than hide from, you know, where your weaknesses are. They're like, no, I want to keep going. So look for those problems. That's right. And actually, you know, I love when I do a 360 review with a leader and they take it in and they're like, okay, great. Let's get to work on these things. As soon as I get these completed, can we go find more? Can we go find out more of what I could do? That's a really different approach than people that might get that feedback and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I didn't know. I feel bad or I'm not happy about it, right? So it's just a totally different orientation. And that's okay. Either of those responses are actually just fine. They just tell me where a leader is in a developmental cycle so that I can help them get to the next place. But yes, when they're at that more outcome creating, they're hungry for information and knowledge, really hungry for what they might do better. Let's get into our last segment, asking for a friend. Who's asking for a friend? Hey, asking for a friend. What advice would you give to those looking to improve their leadership development? And that could be at any level, right? Individual contributor wants to have better leader skills so maybe that they can move up or even just a leader. What advice would you give people? Well, step one would be start. <laughs> Oftentimes we have this idea and like, I want to try something different or I want to be something more and it's hard to get started. So I would say start is the number one thing. And they might say, well, how do you start? What do you do? I would ask for feedback. I would say to people around you, if you don't know, hey, what is it that I could do to be more effective in my role to you as a teammate, as your direct report? What could I do? What would be helpful for you to have from me that you're not getting from me today? And then they'll say something and then it's like, okay, how do I do that? How do I develop that? What are the resources, skills, and tools to be able to do that? One of the things that I'm honestly, sometimes overwhelmed by, but always incredibly impressed is the amount of information that's available on the internet around how do I develop as a leader? How many possible podcasts I can listen to? How many books are available? Leaders talking about what has worked with them. Some of my favorite books are books about leaders who have gone into a big job with lots of complexity and failed. I mean, I love hearing about it. As a matter of fact, there's a very famous leader who wrote a book and I read it and I was so intrigued with his failure. I emailed him and I said, I want to sit down. I want to talk with you. I want to learn more. I want to learn everything. And he was like, absolutely. I'll tell you everything. Why don't we meet? And so we had lunch and he did. He went through everything. And and as I was encountering new things, global expansion, things that he had worked through and not done well in his perspective to hear his thoughts and ideas about what I might do, it was unbelievable. Now, when I tell people about who the leader is and that we reached out and that they responded, it was like in 22 minutes, they're like, how did that happen? I have no idea, to be honest with you. But what I do know is that I reached out for connection and they responded. So I would say the other thing is use the resources around you, whether that's email to reach out to an author and say, hey, I'd love to talk more about this or other people within your organization, they have lots of input that they can give. And also, I think it makes people feel really good to be able to give their thoughts about what worked and what didn't. Yeah. I think there's something really humanizing. And when I read stories like that, like of somebody creating a failure, and I'm hearing from people at companies that the company wants them to fail fast, admit to it, and then keep going. There's something really humanizing about that. Because I think sometimes leaders, maybe leaders, maybe just employees, some people can make mistakes and we don't really hear about them. So that when we make mistakes, it feels like we're the only people making mistakes. Absolutely. So this is a story of years ago, back before email. So this was like in my first internship out of college. And we, our company at Aon, we used voicemail like we use email now. So you'd voicemail someone and say something and then you could voicemail the whole company. And I will never forget this. We had a leader who had done an offsite with a team and they had made a choice about doing something and it violated the safety of the group. And they got on an all company email and they said, Hey, 
I just wanted to share what I did today because I actually put the participant in a safety risk. Thankfully, nothing happened, but here was the setup. Here's the way it occurred. And I'm sharing it with all of you so that you know, and you're aware and you don't make the same mistake I did. I tell you what, that for me as an employee was so formidable. I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this person just shared this with all of us. And everybody responded back. Thank you so much for sharing. I've done that before. And I didn't even realize what could have happened. I so appreciate it. And I was like, wow. And the very last share back was just remember a mistake, if not shared is just a mistake. But if a mistake happens and you share it, it's information going forward for the system. And I have always kept that so close to me, information going forward for the system. And so if you're in that outcome creating mindset and you're trying to figure out everything you can, if somebody has made a mistake and something happened, that's great because all of a sudden you have new information that you didn't have before. And so fostering that open communication and back and forth and tell us what happened. All of a sudden it's like, oh, wow. Okay, that's great. And of course it requires that you're listening and hearing and understanding but it does provide quite a great deal of resource for the organization. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a conversation with some folks on the podcast before where that we talk about what's a mistake you've made. Because, you know, a lot of times people don't let go of mistakes. If you're a perfectionist or you want to do things right or used to seeing everyone do everything right, or at least you think when you make a mistake, it like it becomes a core memory. When I was talking to some folks earlier in the year about this, what we decided was The way your leader reacts to your mistake is a huge impact on how you sort of process that as well. Like if you have a leader that's like, hey, it happens, kind of laughing about it, trying to raise your spirits because you're on the verge of tears or whatever, that's one thing. Then it helps, immediately helps an anxiety sort of calm down. But if you have a leader who's just not as empathetic, it just completely like, like you think you're getting fired, they never let it go. That's a totally different reaction. Yes. And the way in which they lead in those moments, how they deploy themselves into that circumstance, that's what remind leaders. Like you're not just doing, you're not just acting. You are actively deploying yourself into circumstance in this moment. How they do that could determine how you as a leader end up in 10 or 15 or 20 years. Right. And so if you actually take it in that vein, as a leader, all of a sudden, the way in which I behave, I want to slow things down, right? I really want to slow down so that I can make sure that I actually deploy the way I would want to versus the way my gut instinct might be. For me, one thing that my team and I did a few years ago, I was scheduling myself in meetings too rapidly. I, I would do like meeting after meeting after meeting. And I'd find by the fourth meeting, particularly if we're like on a Teams meeting or on Zoom, I would look at myself and I would be going like this. And that had nothing to do with the meeting or the content of the meeting. That was about me being hungry or tired or overwhelmed with information or overwhelmed with needing to respond. And so I made the choice to do no more than three meetings a day after that. And it took a long time because I am a person that wants to be there for my team, right? So if anybody needs something, I want to be right there. But what I found is it just works better if I have three a day. Then if someone shoots me a message and says, hey, can you talk through this? I'm much better to do that. I'm relaxed. I'm calm. I'm way more helpful. And I get actually get a lot more done. And that was, you know, I got that from a lot of feedback from people that said, do you know you're like rubbing your head and your eyes in meetings? And sometimes you'll just put your head in your hands and just respond vocally. (laughs) And I was like, well, thank you for the feedback. Right. <laughs> I guess I should turn my own camera so I can watch myself. Because when I was, when you were doing that, if I was in a meeting with you, I'd be like, oh, I've, she's bored. She's done with this conversation. She doesn't look into it. I got to wrap this up and get off of here. Right. <laughs> or she's annoyed with the way yeah. we're doing this or, or whatever. When in fact, this, if I'm doing this, it means that I am like so in that I'm actually trying to think harder. And if I turn my gaze from the screen, it's generally because I'm trying to think versus be as a leader, just be with what they're telling me and not feel like I have to respond or react or have any sort of solution. So candidly, 
what they probably need is to just talk it through with me. And that that is actually more useful than any, you know, solution I might come up with. Yeah. I've noticed myself that I have certain reactions like that, like the way I might make a face when someone asks me a question and then I'll see it or, you know, I'll see it in my camera and I'll be like, wow, that came across as really annoyed and sort of like looked angry. I know changing that behavior is very, very hard sometimes, or even just the way you react to someone who gives you bad news at work or even at home. It's hard to change that fundamental behavior that we're sort of used to. But once you recognize it, it's a little bit easier. Well, it's true. And, you know, we just had a situation with a leader. It was actually really cool to see. So there were probably five of us on the email, sent an email. There was some information in there that could have been other than positive or neutral. Somebody wrote back and had a pretty reactive response to it. It came back to all of us. We read it. We were like, okay. And then came back a few moments later and said, can I try that again? (laughs) That was not the best me. That was not the way I want to deploy myself against this situation. Let me try that again. And then rewrote their response. And I tell you what, the courage to do that, the authenticity to say, wait a second, that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. And the action orientation to rewrite that to all those people and come back. It was pretty remarkable, actually. It it actually was a really cool lesson. I know that the person wishes it wouldn't have happened in the first place, but getting to see the way in which they changed that was really fun. Yeah. It goes back to what you said, sharing mistakes, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Even just hearing that, I'm like, oh, it almost feels like I have permission to do that when I don't show up. My best self, I can say, hey, no, you can still fix this. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, Betsy, this has been so much fun. You're amazing. I've had a great time talking to you. I feel like there's so much I can learn from you. If we had 20 hours to record this, I would have a million questions (laughs) and learn so much. So thank you so much for being on Cohesion. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, let our listeners know where they can find you if they want to reach out. Uh, Absolutely. So leadershipcircle.com is our website. And my email is betsy.leatherman at leadershipcircle.com. Or you can reach out on LinkedIn I'm on all those places. And I'm also at Twitter. My handle is at BB Leather. Great. Thank you so much for joining me, Betsy. This has been great. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I appreciate it. You too. Thank you for listening to the Cohesion Podcast, brought to you by Simpler, the leading AI-powered employee experience platform. We are on a mission to transform the work experience for billions of people across the world. Organizations use our products to deliver personalized experiences that inspire and engage their employees. When work is good, life is better. Learn more at simpler.com. That's S-I-M-P-P-L-R.com. To all of our listeners out there, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, make sure to hit subscribe, leave a review, and head over to www.simpler.com slash podcast for more information. Until next time, you're listening to the Cohesion Podcast brought to you by Simpler. See you in the next episode.